Well, for years, I thought Harry Potter was the work of Satan, and then I decided not to, and uh, I, I decided I was wrong. And I read this, I read it, uh, I listened to it, I watched the movies, and there's one scene in it that just, uh, it always just grips me. And if you don't know the story, uh, Harry is, this, is living with his aunt and uncle, the Dursleys, and they kind of hate him, they think he's a weirdo, and... Uh, he definitely hates them, and, uh, and, and he starts getting these letters in the mail, and uh, they, they won't stop coming, and he keeps stealing them, they, and the, the parents keep stealing them away, stealing them away, stealing them away, and they try to get him away from the letters, and finally, they go as far away from civilization as they can get. They go to a hut on a rock in the middle of the North Sea, just as there's one hut on this entire island not much of an island. It's a rock. Nobody can possibly deliver a letter there. They are alone, and they shut the door, and they're in this freezing cold hut, no electricity, no phone, wondering what they're going to do, and they hear a knock on the door. And they don't open the door, and a giant of a man comes through the door without them opening it. He blows it down, and comes to them and starts talking to them about Harry and, and why, why they've hid him. And, and uh, finally, Harry says, um, he starts to tell Harry who he is, and Vernon, the uncle, said, stop right there, sir. And Harry, Harry says, my mom and dad were famous? And this man named Hagrid says, you don't know what you are? And Hagrid looks at his uncle and his aunt and said, you never told him? You never told him what was in the letter that was left for him? You've never told him who he is? You've kept it from him all these years? And Harry says, you kept what? And, Harold said, and Hagrid says, you're a wizard, Harry. You're a wizard. And his entire life changes this little boy who's been bullied his entire life, who has never gotten what he felt like he deserved, what he wanted. He didn't get what he deserved. He was never treated as even loved, much less special. Finds out that he has powers within him that he had no idea. He had no idea what he was. And his life of fear and sadness and self-pity was all a result of not knowing what he was. I think Christians in our tradition struggle. When I say our tradition, I mean kind of the uh, Presbyterian wing of the evangelical church, Reformed, whatever word you want to use. We struggle with knowing who we are. We struggle with knowing who we are. And as a result of not knowing who we are, we struggle with self-pity, with doubt, with fear, with regret, with failure. Uh, we, we, we put too, way too much stress on our shoulders. I hear phrases like, I just don't know if I can do it, or I just don't know what's going to happen if X takes place. And I spend a lot of my life looking at people going, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Because you are. 
And you see, we struggle with those thoughts and those emotions because in our tradition, we have absolutely no idea what we have. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of the living God living within us. And as I was reflecting on it, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, I apologize. The, the scripture text is correct, but that is the only thing in the bulletin is correct. I kept writing the sermon all weekend. I rewrote it on Thursday. I rewrote it on Friday. I'm not even supposed to do that. I rewrote it on Saturday, and I got to the office at 6.30 this morning and rewrote it. It's a very much of a living document. And uh, because I, as, as I thought more and more about what it means that we have the Holy Spirit within us, that Jesus promises us right there in John chapter 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And he, John adds on the comment, he said that referring to the Holy Spirit that had not yet been given. Everybody that comes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into. And I began to think, well, maybe we just need to talk about that. The, the, the Apostle Paul says this is first base. This is the first thing that happens to you. When you believe, you receive the Spirit. If you really study deep, you see that you believe because you'd received the Spirit. And, uh, and we need to talk about that for a little bit. So please stand as we read this text from Galatians and knowing that if you are a believer, you are a temple filled with the Holy Spirit. Much better than a wizard. Hear the word of the Lord. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Thus far, the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all of our glory is like the flowers of the field, and the grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. If you're in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, that is because you have the Holy Spirit. Let, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's, let's talk about this text first, because uh, it's, it's, it's deep, it's rich. Every word is important. The, the, the beginning of it, well, the first two chapters of Galatians are all setting up for this moment. Paul writes the Galatians, and he repeats the gospel real quickly, and then he, uh, he starts to talk about how important it is. Don't let anybody change that. Don't, if anybody changes this message that, that Jesus has died to save his people from this present evil age, 
then let them be accursed, he says. And he, he begins to talk about how confident he is in his message, that uh, he received it from God himself, and that uh, the, the apostles uh, confirmed that he had been called to, to send this message to the Gentiles, and how even the apostle Peter, when he lived out of uh, consistency, when he wasn't walking in step with this message, had to be confronted. And so now he finally gets to the point of the letter. He probably started with this, and then was like, that's a little too hard. Let's go back and add some nice things. And he says, first of all, you foolish Galatians. Now, it's easy to convince you probably that he's yelling that. He's not. Uh, he's writing it, first of all. And um, there, there's a tenderness in it. It's, um, Tim Keller says it, it could be translated, uh, you beloved fools. You know, kind of like your children when they're eating paper. You sweet, sweet idiot. Don't do that. And then he uses a very strong word. He says, who has bewitched you? Now, when we think of bewitched, we think of, you know, a blonde woman on a broom. I do, anyway. Wiggling her nose and making things happen. Uh, that's kind of cute. But when, when the Apostle Paul uses the word bewitched, there's nothing cute about it. He's talking about a demonic thing, an evil thing who has come and and preach this message to you that has enslaved you, that has made you think that your works, your effort, the effort of your body, the effort of you trying to make yourself better, like that is more important than, that, than, than the Holy Spirit who has taken you away from this message of grace and giving you this satanic message of, of salvation by works. Who's done that? And he begins asking them questions. Let me just ask this of you. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by the hearing of faith? Oh, you foolish people. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And that's basically where we're going to stop today. Because the Apostle Paul asks us a very important question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you being perfected by the flesh? Are you so worried about this little rickety ladder that you've built that, that you've got to do all these rungs on the ladder so that you can get to, to being a righteous person? Are you so worried about that ladder because you've forgotten that you are filled with the Spirit? And I think that demands another question. It demands a question, did you begin with the Spirit? Did you begin with the Spirit? When I was in Little League, I played on, uh, we didn't have very fancy names for our Little League teams. I was on Weekly County Bank. And uh, we were the worst Little League team to ever play the game. We won two games in th two years. And, um, and I was a big reason for the weakness. I, I wholly and fully claim that I was terrible. And, um, but there was always, most games we lost were like 20. You parents have been there, you know, just walk after walk after walk. And then when we get up to bat, it would be strikeout after strikeout. Um, but occasionally there were glimmers of hope, you know. 
And I remember, you remember those glimmers of hope. We lost 40 games during those two years, and I don't remember any of those. But I remember one that we had a glimmer of hope. And, and I got on base somehow. It certainly wasn't a hit. And then Matt Melton was behind me, and Matt Melton was growing into a very big mountain of a man. But at this time, he was still a little chubby boy. And, but he swung. He swung hard. And he hit it, and it went high, 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 high. Never seen a ball go that high. And it came down over the fence. And he did a home run. And I was running around the base. Yay, Matt. And you've never seen a chubby little kid so happy. And he was jumping up and down. He was smiling. And he came running around the base. And he got the home plate. And we hugged. And we went back to the dugout. And we were screaming and yelling. We had a chance. And then we see the pitcher do something weird. He stepped off the mound. He threw the ball to first base. And the umpire called Matt out. He didn't touch first base. He didn't touch first base. Paul says the Holy Spirit's first base. He's first base. And the question we need to ask is, have we touched him? Do we have the Holy Spirit? Now, like I said, there's a lot of fear in our corner of the world about the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's reasons for that. Uh, when we, uh, when the turn of the century, uh, the 20th century, and the Azusa Street Revival was happening. There was a, the prominent theologian in the Presbyterian Church was named Benjamin Warfield. And Benjamin Warfield had a, a, a wife who uh, had a, a psychotic break, and she was uh, incredibly anxious and neurotic and could not stand to be without him for more than two hours at a time. And over and over again, he had people, he had Pentecostals telling him, if you had faith, she would be healed. The only reason she hasn't gotten better is because you don't have enough faith. And he responded negatively to that. You can see why. And basically just theologically wrote the Holy Spirit out of the Presbyterian tradition for about 100 years. Um, and there have been excesses. There certainly have been excesses in, uh, in the, the charismatic movement uh, especially there's this very misguided idea that, that the Holy Spirit comes as the second blessing. And, you know, you're, if you have these supernatural, uh, super impressive external gifts and you have the Holy Spirit and you're, you're a more elevated Christian, that, and that is wrong as well. Uh, in between those two, we have the biblical model, which is all Christians have the Holy Spirit. You had the Holy Spirit before you even became a Christian. So the question is, do you? You would know. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, a good feeling. Holy Spirit is not the same kind of spirit of, you know, that you get when you're at a football game and the band does the band and the football run team runs through the giant tee in the south end zone and it's football time in Tennessee. It's not that kind of spirit. It's not a enthusiastic. It's, it's the, the spirit of the living God. It's the spirit who, when, when Solomon was dedicating his temple, he, he prayed, Lord, we don't want you to bless us. We want you. And we're told that the Shekinah glory of God, the Spirit of God, fell upon the temple, and it's, it's hard. The Hebrew is very literal, and it kind of sounds like it was solid blocks of light, if you can imagine that, filling the temple, and the priests tried to go about their work, and they couldn't. They just had to run out. And the Holy Spirit's there. You, you know it, and, and we're told that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, how could we have missed it? If it's so obvious, how could we have possibly missed first base? There's a lot of reasons. I mean, there's tons of reasons to come to church. And they're all good. 
I think they're all good, and I want you to come. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a uh, communal reason to come to church. You come because your friends are here. And you started that probably when your parents brought you to church because they wanted you to have the right kinds of friends. And I, you know what? I think that's great. I want people to come. I want your friends to be here. I want your children to be here. I want your children to grow up in the church and have the kind of friends that grow up in the church. And that, that leads to a second reason why people come to church. People come to church for a, kind of a moral standard. For, they want their, I, I've heard this so many times. You know, I don't go to church anymore, but I want my kids to grow up in the church. I want them to know the Sermon on the Mount. I want them to, to be, you know, the right kind of people, which means what? Don't do drugs. That's pretty much it. Uh, I, just, I just don't want my kids to do drugs. And so I'm going to bring them to church. And you know what? I don't want your I want to be clear about this. I don't want your kids to do drugs either. Bring them to church. It's better than doing drugs. Hear that, kids. And lately, in the, you know, in the last 20 years or so, people have started coming to church because they want to have an experience. They want to touch the infinite. They want to have this this grand transcendental experience. They, they, they want more. And you can get that at church. And, and I hope uh, when we sing those wonderful songs and we, when we break that bread, I hope you feel the presence of the transcendental. And I hope you, you, you feel that presence. And, and it's here. But that's not Christianity either. That's not the Holy Spirit. And honestly, we basically do all three of them. You know, our parents bring us to church we, to, to train us up morally the way we should go. And then while we're doing that, we make all our friends at church. And so we keep coming. And you go to RUF, and you want to marry a good girl, so you go to RUF and find one. The, I mean, the, probably the most common testimony I had as an RUF campus minister was I came to RUF to meet a girl and I ended up meeting Jesus. And that's, that's fine. I like that. Um, and then, you know, you get a, your midlife crisis, and you want to know that there's more. And so you keep coming to church hoping for this experience. All of them are good. But they're not meeting the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes in you, you're born again. You're new. You're different. He, he comes into you and he, he changes everything. It's infinite. It's more. Well, how then do you receive it, he says, we, we ask. I mean, if I haven't, I, how do I receive it? How would I know if I've received it? Well, you receive it by having Jesus Christ publicly portrayed for you as crucified. That's what he says. He tells you how you received it. Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed for you as crucified. Not just, you know, believing the, the facts, Jesus died for our sins, and, uh, but having the, the story told that we were dead in our sins and the, and the Lord who created us loved us while we were rebels so much that he came and, and sacrificed himself to buy us back from our sins. And he defeated death. And he extends to us this call, if anyone is, is weary, let him come to me and find rest. He told them the story. None of them were there. 
They lived in Galatia. They didn't live in Palestine. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They didn't see Jesus crucified. But, but by hearing the story, Paul painted this portrayal, this portrait of, of Jesus crucified, and they saw it spiritually. They heard it, and, and they believed it. They believed it. They, it dawned on them. That's what my mom used to say. It dawned on them. You know what that means? Um, it's, it's a reference to the sun coming up. You know, if you've ever been up early enough and been outside, you know, it gets light a long time before the sun comes up, if it's no cloudy, that, not cloudy that day. And if you're inside and you're kind of looking, you could think, well, I guess the sun's up. But when it breaks the horizon, when you're looking at the sun, you know it. Right? You don't think, I wonder what that huge orange ball is. You know when the sun has come up, it's dawning on you. Um, Tim Keller uses this illustration. I think it's a great one. He talks about being a pastor and therefore sitting with a lot of people uh, with their death approaching. And, uh, you know, the doctor will, will tell them, especially they, they were very clear in those days back in the 60s and 70s, you know, get your affairs in order. We're not, we're not, we don't have much longer. You're not long for this world. Get your affairs in order. And if you've ever been around someone who's received that news, you know it takes it a while. That's a crow, by the way. It's funny. They're so loud. Um, if you've ever been around someone who's received that news, then you know it takes a while for it to sink in. And at first you're in shock, and then uh, after a while, maybe a couple of weeks later, you'll ask the wife how she's doing with this news, and she just breaks down in tears, and she was so hopeful and strong a couple of weeks ago, but it sunk in that she's about to lose her husband. Or you'll be talking with the person themselves, and they'll just break down in tears, and, and it's, it's sunk in that they are about to actually die. That's, that's the closest thing I can think of as an example of conversion that you, you've heard this story, maybe you've heard it for decades, but all of a sudden it sinks in. It sinks in. I, uh, I, I can remember the place, not the day, but the place. And I'd been in the church my whole life, and I don't ever, honestly, I don't ever remember a day when I didn't believe in Jesus and, and have something toward, of, of love toward him. But my life was just racked with guilt and fear and anxiety. And I still struggle with anxiety, but not spiritual anxiety. And suddenly, I just, I've been reading a book, and I realized that if I had, could build a time machine and go back in time and look at Jesus on the cross and say, why are you doing this? He would say, for you. And when I realized that, it sunk in. Both my sin sunk in and my salvation sunk in. It was, it was a beautiful moment, and I changed. Jesus no longer became, uh, was no longer a teacher for me. He was no longer something I ought to do. He was beautiful. To, he was no longer useful to me. Let's put it that way. He was beautiful. He was beautiful. You know what, that difference, right? Like some people, you need Jesus. You need him, right? You need him because life is hard. You need him because the bills, get paying bills is hard. You need him because raising kids is hard. You need him because 
you know, Texas has a 17-point lead in the second half. You just need it. You need Jesus. But that's not beautiful. When it becomes beautiful, you just want to be with him. He stops being useful to you, and he starts being beautiful you sin no longer becomes those things that you kind of want to do they become odious to you you see yourself and you 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 see the the smallness of your heart and you don't like that anymore you want to be better love becomes natural to you you see people with compassion now that you used to see as rivals lost people become pitiable to you You feel sorry for them. You look at them and you see them as sheep without a shepherd. And it becomes the most natural thing in the world to close with him, Um, to become a Christian, to to believe in him, to to throw yourself upon him. It becomes natural. It's, It's the answer to a yearning within you. You've been told that you should for, for years, and it just never felt, ugh. Like you want, you know, it's like, oh, let's just say you were preaching a sermon at 9.49 in the morning, and you hadn't eaten yet, and you've been up for a really long time, let's just say, and, uh, and you're, you're starving, and someone puts in front of you a bowl of Brussels sprouts, and Brussels sprouts are something that you've heard your entire life are good for you. And you are sure, though you would never know by experience, that they would fill up that hole in your stomach. And people are telling you, if you're hungry, just eat. And you're like, eh, it's all right. How bad can hunger be? And then all of a sudden, someone takes away the Brussels sprouts and brings to you a huge cheeseburger. And it becomes so natural. Right? My mouth is just watering thinking about this hypothetical situation. Uh, it becomes natural to, to want to just consume that, and you, you eat it, right? That's, that's what happens when the Holy Spirit he turns Jesus from Brussels sprouts into a hamburger. Um, it becomes natural for you to, to want him. You want to close with him. You want to consume him. You want to be in him. And when you do that, then the, the, you have done that because the Spirit is in you. You have the person of God within you. How I wish I could convince you of that. You have the Spirit of God within you. How dare you say, I just don't know what I'm going to do. You're going to be fine. You're going to be glorious. You have the Spirit of God within you. you have, why would you worry about what's going to happen if I go back to my life of sin? You're not going anywhere. The Spirit of God is within you. The Spirit of God is praying for you. The Spirit of God is praying for your children. The Spirit of God knows your soul so well that He's, he's so familiar with you that He knows the grunts and the groans that you, you utter in the, in the darkest parts of the night. And he knows what those mean, and He takes those prayers to God the Father, and He says, Ricky's groaned this. Can we, what do you think? How can we use that fear and that stress to make Him look more like Jesus? You have the Spirit of God within you. That's way better than being a wizard. You've got more, not less. 
And if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't, you know. And if you don't, then don't settle for that. Don't settle for coming to church for friends. There's infinitely more. And if you want it, you want it because that's the Holy Spirit at work. And it's even better than that. You'll look, he tells you how to receive it. You receive it not by works, but by faith. It's really this interesting process that happens as people start to become Christians. The process of becoming a Christian usually looks like this. All of a sudden, you realize it's real. It's true. And that scares you. And you begin working really hard to perfect yourself. And you never miss church. And you're just working so hard to get things right and do the right thing every moment. And you're just, you, you, never, you never miss anything. And you exhaust yourself. And you look back after months and months or years and years of living this way. And you say, I've accomplished nothing. I'm still the same prideful, selfish, self-obsessed loser that I always was. I'm going to quit trying. I'm going to quit trying. I'm going to quit trusting myself, and I'm going to trust Jesus. And all of a sudden, he becomes so beautiful to you. This, this, this Jesus who was always beforehand, he was always folding his arms, looking down his nose at you, going, a little more. Come on, you can do three more push-ups. Come on. Now he's smiling at you saying, oh, my dear, dear son. And he's so beautiful. It's not, did, you, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing? There's only one way. Lay your, your work down. Lay your, your trust in yourself down. See, the, see the, the foolishness of it, the selfishness of it. Trust him. It's like some of you are saying, I just don't know how. I don't know how. to. to I've tried so hard and so long. I don't know how. It's like you're basically saying, I'm so tired. I've been carrying this weight so long. I don't know how to sit down. You know how to sit down. You do. Come sit. Throw yourself on Jesus. He'll catch you. And what felt like a burden becomes a joy. What felt like work becomes rest. You finally get to be who you've always been. Please pray with me. Father, I think it's hardest to see for those who are so close. And they've been close for a long time. I pray that you would open their heart, open their eyes to see Jesus clearly portrayed as crucified. Open their eyes to see that they can't make themselves what they want to be. And, and invite them to just rest in Jesus. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.